You are listening to The Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. I am Michael Cleary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We are both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. If you would like a if you would like to ask a question or give feedback, you can reach us at currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com, and we answer questions during the episodes as we're able. And it would also, if you don't care, leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. Five-star reviews are great. We got one the other day from, it looks like, I McCallerman. So have has anybody famous reviewed us yet? Um, There's well, not been like a D Trump or, uh, <laughs> There's not been a D Trump. It depends on how you define famous. Uh, if you okay, I mean, I'm so I just I'm looking forward to the moment I see like C Barkley or uh, L James. Charles Barkley. Yeah, yeah. The the guy who was, was hey, in the I, of all of the former loudmouthed NBA players who currently have platforms. Charles Barkley, I feel like, is the one who would most appreciate what we do. Oh, yeah. He so, would be a big fan. Yeah. I love it. Charles, if you're listening, please leave a review. Thank you. Um, and we would support or appreciate your support. So what this guy uh, would – or wait, do we know it's a guy? Um, I don't. It just says, I am Callerman. Is that like a joke? I am. No. No, okay. All right. It says, current reality is one of my go-to podcasts. Michael and Wade bring a level-headed biblical perspective to a broad spectrum of important issues in the church and society at large. I commend the show to any Christian desiring to stay anchored in God's truth in a confused and confusing world. That is a incredibly well-written review. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, would you like to be a staff writer? Yeah, I, I know. Because I, I, I can see the screenshot that you were just reading, and he even put the, or she, he or she, put the parentheses around and confusing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it, this is like... Well punctuated. Like, I don't write that well for, like, sermons. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Another announcement. Um, we So we've uh, announced our King's Domain Conference coming up, and it's related to our topic for today. Um, the conference is April 18 to 20, 2024, and the, the theme is Gendered Virtue, Men and Women Who Take Dominion. Mm. And it's featuring Michael Foster, Joe Rigney. Toby Sumter, Shane Morris, Matt McBee, and myself. Um, and it, I'm, I'm super excited about it. I think it'll be great. And I'm really looking forward to getting to know these guys. I'm going to put a link to the show notes um, to the the page on Eventbrite. And uh, Wade runs our Kings yeah. Domain website, so maybe you can put up a Yeah, a absolutely. Page for the no, and, and, uh, <laughs> last year's conference, just for what it's worth, uh, you know, I was behind the scenes kind of helping uh, like a, in a in a volunteer capacity, but I did get to see I think every single session, and it was dynamite. But the actual material was phenomenal. Like I really enjoyed hearing a lot of those guys I'd never heard before. Chase Davis came last year, and I'd never heard him speak publicly, even though I'd listened to his mm-hmm. podcast. And his his first opening night session was great. So that was cool. But also, it was just a chance to talk to other like minded yeah. men and women. Uh, I mean, in 2023 America, to find a Bible-believing conservative Christian who, you know, especially yeah. on issues of sexuality, LGBTQ stuff, government overreach, it's not exactly like we're growing on trees everywhere. Yeah. That, that, that was the yeah. one of the, the biggest blessings for me. I mean, I loved all the content, but I was able to build relationships with really solid people, yeah. leaders that I've stayed in touch with and can continue to. It's like, you know, like, like Aaron Wren was there last year. I was mm-hmm. able to catch up with him whenever I saw him, you know, a few weeks ago at a different conference. 
being able to connect with other people, develop ongoing relationships is gold. Yeah. That is that is the biggest benefit, I think. So please come, folks. Yep. Uh, plan on coming out. It's here in Cincinnati. We'll host it. Um, it's not going to be a huge conference, um, but it will be um, a great opportunity, I think, to um, to get to know some really great leaders in a more you know, personal setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so today's episode is, the title is Marriage Proves That God Loves Us and Wants Us to Be Happy. Yeah, and that echoes what I thought was a Martin Luther quote about beer, but it's actually Benjamin Franklin. And apparently he didn't even really say it. But it's still, it's a famous quote that people like <laughs> parrot and play around with. I was just telling you, one of uh, your friends, Doug Ponder, tweeted out the other day, autumn, you know, is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. And there's a local breakfast place that has the beer quote up on the walls. Well, I was thinking whenever you, you mentioned that, that like they really quoted at this, like, it's called Hangover Easy, yeah, and it's a yeah, breakfast place, yeah. so you can get the idea who their target is. Right. Uh, <laughs> like, we do, really we do like the Martin food Luther? there, but <laughs> good yeah, omelets. I'm pretty sure I'll take. I'm going to be there this week. I'll take a picture of it if it really if they did attribute it to Luther, because I feel like I remember having the thought. Really, they've got a Martin Luther quote here. Yeah. But anyways, so that's the echo there. Well, Wade, uh, you you have yes, you have the con. I do. Um, so let, let me before I I uh, get us into just a taste of crazy here the segment where we we take a look at a credible not a crazy i mean not a uh, you know blog post by some no-name person that we just picked off the internet so we could make fun of somebody but like an actual credible example of what we are advocating against or what we what we don't want people to uh to imbibe before i say that let me just a quick word to our unmarried christian listeners um and I'm sure we may have an unmarried non-Christian listener or two, but I'm talking primarily to you as Christians. Uh, there's a one of the heroines in my house. We have some church history folks we love, but all six of my kids uh, love Amy Carmichael. Sure, your it? kids love heroin. They they do. That's what I, that's um, what I heard. So we make we put it in the middle of the table, like with fruit bars and bananas. There's a <laughs> here's there's here's a some gummy basket snacks. of oranges, dude. <clears throat> Child Protective Services, if you're listening. Okay. All you feds in yes. the audience, disregard the last 30 seconds. No, H-E-R-O-I-N-E. By the way, I do think heroin the drug was named that because they thought it would be a heroin to get people off opium. Fun fact of the day. I think that's where the name came from. That is a fact. Yes. I don't know if it's fun. I, yeah, it's not fun. That's, <laughs> yeah, it's horrifying. Um, but one of the... We, we love um, Martin Luther. We love Augustine. We've got a, a lot of masculine uh, heroes. But Amy Carmichael is one of the feminine heroes in our house. And she was single, and she was called to India uh, around the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, to be a missionary. And she uh, had an orphanage that she ran, and God used her singleness to to bless a lot of, uh, like, generations of uh, Indian children. And she was a part of the ending um, of—there was a practice in India of where you would take your uh, daughter and you would— bring her to the temple and sacrifice her to the gods, not in the sense of like murdering her, but you would leave her there to be a temple prostitute. Hmm. And Amy Carmichael was a part of that practice being uh, made illegal. Um, And so she's just a wonderful woman. And so my, even as I believe these things about what God teaches as marriage, as as a normative human blessing within my household, we still have this biblical category and this worthwhile category of and God calls single people to glorify Him, using their singleness to do so. Yeah. So I want you to hear that. If you're, if, whether you feel God has called you to celibacy, which I'm going to wager is the vast minority of our single yeah. audiences, single audience uh, listeners, 
If that's true, praise God, use the celibacy he's gifted you with in that way. But if you're single and marriage simply has not happened, it's not materialized, you are called to glorify God, and we as your brothers in Christ want to help you do so. so yeah, I'm, I'm, what we're after here is, so we're going to talk about the the blessing of marriage, and we have some, some, some news reports here about married people statistically speaking, report higher levels of happiness in their own lives. Um, and as you know, Wade and I were talking about this before we started, I was like, okay, I, one thing I want to make sure that comes across. And so we just like, hey, let's just say it outright. Um, we want, we don't want single, those that are single, because most of you, at least in our, you know, most Christian singles that I know, if not all of them, are, they desire to get married. Right. They, that's what their desire is. But for a number of reasons that will highlight um, the dating market has gotten more difficult. The, right. the, the potential pool of spouses has uh, shrunk, and it's, it's just more difficult. So being single is, uh, is, a, is a trial, a great trial for, uh, for most Christians that I know. So while we're highlighting the, the blessing and goodness of marriage and why it is good to pursue it, we're saying that, so that because we want you to see that God has created this for a good reason and to not give up hope but rather uh, to be encouraged and challenged to to not give up on marriage right? and to see it as a good thing. I think we're pushing back against, this is us pushing back against something that has happened both in secular culture, secular movies, secular art and music, and even within Christian circles, uh, that singleness and marriage are two completely equal, equally good options for the vast majority of humanity. Yeah. And that's just simply not the case. God gave Paul the gift of celibacy and he has given the gift of celibacy to many Christians throughout history. But marriage and singleness are not, it's not vanilla and chocolate ice cream. Yeah. And some people like one and some people like the other. And so we're pushing back against that tendency that has arisen. Uh, so, so I'll read just a little bit of <clears throat> this article from Tacoma Christian Counseling, not Tacoma. Not like Taco Mommy, <laughs> Tacoma, Washington, uh, Christian Counseling. So this article uh, does some of what I'm I'm saying is a part of the problem. So I'm just going to read a couple of, of sentences from it here. And we'll put the link to the uh, article in the show notes so you can see it yourself. There, there's a few things in here that are fine, normal Christian, uh, uh, you know, admonitions or exhortations to single people. But a lot of it has this air of singleness is a is a beautiful thing in and of itself that is uh, equally valid option for most people that we're pushing back against. Uh, one one sentence from the article underneath the heading of practice self-care, which by the way, self-care, that, that I almost always dry heave when I see the phrase self-care. It... It's just such a, it's such a yuppie, hipster, narcissistic way yeah. to look at it. All right. But underneath that heading, when you don't have to invest time or energy into caring for another individual, your time can be fully allotted to your own care and needs, which is, is true insofar as it goes, but it is also the, it is the essence of selfishness. That is 100% true. When I don't have to think about other humans. I can only think about myself. <laughs> I've got more time to think about right, myself when I'm not bothered by other very people. Accurate, very accurate. Very <laughs> accurate. Uh, so I've got one child, one of my six, who loves to like just spend time on, on her own. And sometimes it's like she wants to write or think or whatever. But a lot of times it's like when I'm by myself, I don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks or what anybody else is doing. And nobody here will get on my nerves. And I can just 
make everything in the room exactly as I want it. And I'm like, yeah, honey, that that's what being selfish is. <laughs> uh, another couple of sentences that underscore that same thing uh, underneath the heading. Enjoy a simple life in this article uh, on page seven. It says singleness has the potential to be a simple life with less complications, responsibilities and expectations. When the only person you have to worry about is yourself, you have a level of freedom that doesn't exist within a relationship. You get to decide where to live, what schedule to keep, what kind of lifestyle to live, how to spend your time and money. These items can be major issues between a married couple, but for a single person, they are far less complicated. If you're single, you don't need to adjust your decision-making to another person's needs into consideration. Inherently, the only person's needs that are relevant are yours. It's almost like it is good <laughs> right. for Adam to be alone. Right, exactly. And that and he I mean think of all the self-care Adam could practice there exactly. in the garden. I mean, he could he could reflect on his own on his own he life. He can wake and, up whenever he wants. Yeah, he's like I think I'll I think I'll, you know, yes. sleep till noon and And by the way, so this would not apply to Amy Carmichael who I'm talking about. Amy Carmichael had to take dozens of other humans and their needs into account in her singleness. And that, I know you and I would say, and almost any Christian father would say, Christian husband and father would say, it's the very fact that I have to consider what is best for three or four or eight or however many other eternal souls that is sanctifying me. I'm a better Wade in 2023, largely because God used seven other humans and my being responsible for them. To, well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Jesus said, you know, if anyone would find life, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the idea there is like nobody wants to take up a cross. Right. Taking up a cross is painful, difficult, uncomfortable, but it is in the emptying yourself and pouring out yourself for the sake of other people that you find an unexpected happiness that is not. What concerns me about this article is this is written by a, count, a Christian counseling organization. Yeah, I know. I know. That, was, um, that was unsettling to me. Yeah. And I'm like, are, so is this, is this how you counsel people and you call this Christian? Um, because this doesn't sound very Christian to me. No. And I, there's a part in here. I can't find it at the moment. But uh, listener, feel free to, as you look at the article, to look for it yourself. Um, they mention you can, you can take into consideration only your own interest and concerns about picking a church and picking which service at the church you attend. And then there's kind of a hat tip to... Um, Maximize communi- c- consumerism. Yeah. So basically, it's like I, I can... I can really dive into my wants and needs. Yeah. Now, w- would there ever be a case where it is good to really examine your own wants and needs? Obviously, the answer is yes. But to to hold that up as like a viable lifestyle that is good and proper, hmm. we don't we don't have too little narcissism in America. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, we, have a, we don't we have, have too little we self-care. Have a, we have a narcissism famine. Right, exactly. Land. I mean... It, I found the quote here on page four. Okay. It says, likewise, you can try out any church you please and attend any service time that meets your needs. You get the opportunity to tailor your experience to your personality and preferences, making it ideal for growth and development. Taylor, I mean. I mean, we're talking about worship here. Right, exactly. So it's like, God, I want to tailor worship to suit my needs and to, to fit my personality and preferences rather than I'm coming into your presence to bow the knee in 
worship and adoration to the one true God. I know. And, <laughs> and that's how you become happy is when you do that. You know, an unmarried being that never, ever would talk like that? Every angel in heaven right now. Yeah. <laughs> None of them are like, since I don't have an angel spouse, I can really tailor my worship of the triune God. To, <laughs> I can wake up at 1030 instead of nine because I'm more of a late afternoon person. Well, like, I, I, sometimes I'll get up early to go to the early liturgical service. but uh, It's just, and again, if we were not already swimming in this stuff, Michael and I would not be pushing back against it or picking on it. It's the fact that America is already drowning in this sort of Mm self-focus. And then you layer on top of that, now we're going to say that to prolong singleness and delay marriage is actually, it's a time for you to, you know what you never think about enough? Yourself. I'm like every American on planet, like every American thinks too much about themselves. I'm using hyperbole here, Mm -hmm. but pretty much all of us spend way too much time thinking about ourselves. We don't need more opportunities to really get into what do we want. (laughs) Yeah. Um, let me let me give a a, a one sentence lay of the land here. the, The bumper sticker version of this issue. Our, our contention is that marriage is a normative blessing of God to humanity. And that it's not surprising that people are happier when they live in line with the world God made and are less happy when they don't. Yeah. So marriage is at the, at the beginning of the Bible for a reason. God created the world. He created Adam on the sixth day. And right after he creates Adam, he gives, her, he gives him this, this helper fit for him to help him take dominion, which is why our conference next year is named what it is. We need men and women who together take dominion. Yeah. Um, That, that reality, the fact that God created marriage as a dominion taking gift to humanity is I think being reflected in this Atlantic article that, that prompted Michael and I talking about this. Uh, The, the article's title was take a wife, please. But the article's a secular... It is a woman, right? Yeah, she was a lady. Olga? Yeah, Olga. Olga. Kazan? I have yet to meet a man named Olga. Uh, They may exist, but I'm going to go ahead and assume (laughs) here that Olga is is she. Uh, Yeah, because she says boyfriend throughout the article. Yeah, and and the the subtitle, why are married people happier than the rest of us? Yes. So it seems like there she's... and, and, And as it goes through the article, she does refer... She references like a desire for marriage yeah. and the headaches having she goes through trying to think about planning a wedding and that sort of thing. I think she says she's been cohabiting with this man for 13 years, if I remember right. Yeah, to be honest, this puzzled me because after 13 years of cohabitation. So she's been living with this man for about 13 years. And as a you know author of some kind, I, I couldn't quite pick up on whether she was a sociologist or she's just an Atlantic author. And so she you know is familiar with data and stuff. But she... She interacts with this reality that sociological data indicates married people are happier. And she's trying to figure out why. And she gives a little bit of, she examines the possibility, is it just that happier people get married? And that's why married people are happier. But in the end, she, I, I think she allows for that. That's not. Yeah. So you have a correlation or a causation. Yeah. Uh, certainly there's a correlation between happiness and marriage, period. Um, and the survey, uh, uh, the, the the question was something about like three three degrees mm-hmm. of happiness. Are you yeah. not happy, kind of happy, or very happy? Something like that. And for those that said they are very happy, um, what are the features that connects these people? Yeah. Are there any patterns or themes? And 
one of the things that jumped out in this research is that of all the people that said they are very happy, a very strong percentage of them are um, are married. Yeah, and I, I, I think my, so Michael and I are saying, look, we could all, you know, Christian or non-Christian, try to figure out exactly why that is. But the Bible lays marriage out as the normative thing God gave Adam and Eve. And so one of the simplest ways to interpret this data is to just accept the fact that, you know, God made mouths for eating. It's pleasant to eat. God made marriage and it's pleasant to get like this is just it's mm-hmm. in line with what he actually did when he created the world yeah uh here's here's one this is um about halfway through the article she says uh a 2017 study of thousands of british people that found that those who got married were more satisfied with their life than those who didn't even when you control for how satisfied they were before they got married it also found that married brits were more satisfied years later meaning the happiness boost was not fleeting, and that marriage inoculated the couples somewhat from the midlife dip in happiness that most people experience. And I, I, I wrote down a little note for myself here on that, uh, that little sentence. It's it, the midlife dip that it describes. Um, the midlife dip that it describes, I, I am going to go ahead and postulate that one reason for that would be that marriage is likelier than singleness to take one's eyes off of oneself. And as you enter that 40 to 50 year where you're like, okay, I've I've made it past maybe my peak earnings. My career is what it is. My life kind of is what it is. Things are, and you might get a little disillusioned, having someone else with his or her own chronic pain, having children with their with their own problems. Yeah. Have, it, yeah. It, it helps you to just, it, it gives you a perspective. I'm not the only person on this planet. Exactly. I'm not the only person with pain or trials or problems. And especially as you get into the second half of your life, you start to think about your mortality more. You start to experience more funerals than weddings and, and births and that sort of thing. And you start to get a sense that, you know, um, I'm not going to be here forever. And that, that experience if if you are the your sole point of reference you were going you're it's going to be depressing yeah yeah and i i think those of us who are heady uh thoughtful artistic michael and i are both like this uh we've got a few guys in the church who are even more like this than me Uh, i've got one in particular in mind right now and it's just you know the kind of guy who can who can think like well, why did I do this? And then why did I want to do this? And then why did I want to want to do this? And then, you know, I mean, like th- that sort of thing. <laughs> Can't get out of their own head. Yeah, we're the kinds of guys who, when we were in our early 20s, probably would have been in like emo rock bands, that kind of thing. And it, it's disgusting and I hate it about myself. But that kind of person, it's it's the reality of me getting home and there being six children, all of whom who have their own problems and they all need me to help fix their problems. That thing is healthy. That mm-hmm. reality is healthy. It draws me out. I don't have time anymore. Yeah to consider <laughs> yeah i mean there there is some it is pleasurable to to be needed um I, I mean there's a there's an unhealthy version of it of course but there's there's something good and right to to know that i have something to contribute to someone else's life that has a deficit in that area mm-hmm. they they need me for something whenever you get home you have little children that all they they need something and I mean, when the kids are really little, I mean, it's what their needs are much more yeah, tactile. Yeah. It's like diapers change. They need discipline or whatever. But 
you know, as 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 people get on in life, there is a sense of I am passing on a legacy. I'm mm-hmm. passing. I am imprinting who I am on this other person, and I want to help them develop and mature and grow. And I want to celebrate with them their milestones and that 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 distraction from ourselves is good. Right. And so, so as you and I encounter, we've got, you know, let's say a, a Christian woman in her thirties who marriage hasn't happened yet for no fault of her own or for no perceivable, obvious fault of her own. And she's she, okay. Well, then, so w- we're saying, well, then we want to help that accommodate, help that Christian woman accommodate for that reality. Yeah. Yeah. And it'd be a good place to just insert a reminder here. It's like, we're not saying single people are selfish. Correct. Um, Everybody's selfish. We're all selfish. Um, The point is that why are married people happier? Right. Statistically, data speaking. And I think it is because marriage forces us into a mode of being that is more conducive to discipleship. Marriage is likelier to draw you into self-denial than singleness. Sure. And and as the article you read from earlier indicates, like they're saying it out in the open. Right. Like, hey, if you're single, you you are free to maximize (laughs) your own self-interest. Right. And that that God didn't make the world that way. God made the world where we are happier and we are healthier. We're better people when we're thinking of others and not merely of ourselves. Yeah, and so and since marriage forces the hand in that, if you're single, if you have not been able to to find a Christian spouse yet, there's something to work against, and it's better to account for that reality that you're going to have to work against it than to be told by the large Christian landscape, no, it's just as beautiful and good and proper and normal. Yeah. To we're we're saying let's account for this difficulty you have. Yeah. Let's be honest about it, and then. Yeah. So those that would say it is just as good one or the other, one does not edge out the other in any way. Essentially, what they're saying is it is just as good to be unhappy as it is to be happy. Yeah. Because we know one condition it, it does seem to produce happiness. Right. Um, at least there's a correlation there. Yeah. And and we're talking about the population. So we're not talking about one individual. If you Correct. give me this, you know, my, my father was... One of the ladies who was instrumental in his salvation uh, was a woman named Becky, who was apparently called to celibacy, and she was from this little storefront Pentecostal church. And uh, and and she would she ended up actually being being murdered by a a lost guy who uh, really yeah yeah. So I my little si- never heard this story. Yeah, so my little sister is named after this woman. So my dad was a heroin addict in the early '80s, and a little storefront Pentecostal church led him to the Lord. And one of the one of the most essential women in his life was a single woman named Becky, um, and she would watch me when I was like a baby, uh, and and loved my mom even though she was still using at the beginning of my dad's clean years. He was the one, and, and my mom ended up coming around to know the Lord. She would watch me since he was a single parent, sort of at that moment. And she ended up being, uh, I mean, it, it, it's sad. I'll just say she was raped and murdered by a man mm-hmm. who I think has since been executed. Um, he went to that church and thought uh, he was going to get to pursue Becky. And she told him, I'm, she, my dad said she used the language of like, I'm married to the Lord. Hmm. But she was essentially what we would say called to celibacy. Okay. And she served the church mightily in her singleness. Uh, and so th- she's always kind of a, a woman I think of when I think of this. Well, that individual woman, I would say happiness for her, she had found her paramount level of happiness. Yeah, in the Lord. So we're not talking about any individual person. We're talking about the population as a whole. If you look at 
10,000 or 100,000 or a million people, marriage is clearly, it's, it's irrefutable, marriage is clearly more inclined towards happiness than singleness. And the reason is that that's, God, how, that's how God made people. It may, not, it may not be how he made an individual person. There may yeah. be a celibate person listening. Yeah, yeah, there's always gonna be generalizations. And in the aggregate, you can see patterns that are generally true that don't always apply to every individual. And so I think like the Apostle Paul, uh, he, he spoke of joy uh, incessantly, Yeah. Um, even in the midst of incredible suffering. You know, obviously, Paul had learned to be content in every circumstance. Philippians 4 tells us that. Um, nevertheless, Paul's, Paul is an outlier, right. uh, statistically speaking, and you know, we, marriage is more is, it is normative. And by the way, if he weren't an outlier, there would be no more people to evangelize. Right? <laughs> right? right. If he were the norm, humanity would have died out. Yeah. Um, this was an interesting quote from the Atlantic article that uh, I saw you put in here. So this is the author, Olga, Miss Olga, talking here. I, I, can't, I cannot get over the fact that there's an actual person under the age of 80 who's named Olga. Like, I... Isn't it like a like a Swedish yeah, name yeah. or something like that? So it's probably pretty common in okay. some parts of the world. But she says, married people are much happier than the unmarried, according to these data. Looking at those same 100 people, 40 married people will say they're happy, 10 will say they're not happy. But single people are about evenly split between happy and not happy. It doesn't really matter if you're divorced, widowed, or have never married. If you're not married, you're less likely to be happy. And then she quotes this... Um, I think it's a sociologist that she mentions a few times in the article. The only happy people for 50 years have been married people, Peltzman told me. (laughs) And so it's just, that's a, this is a woman who's not coming from our worldview. Um, She's just trying to account for something that that data bears out. Yeah. So you want to take us into the deep dive? Yeah. There are two two big implications of why this is relevant in our day. Yes. Okay. So one is the, the data bears out clearly we are getting married less. We as Americans are getting married less. Um, in 1960, 72% of American adults were married. 72% of people over the age of 18 in the United States were married in 1960. By 2016, it was down to 50%. And if you go to just the age group of 25 to 52, which is kind of like the prime of life mm-hmm. sort of years, in 1990, 67% of those people in that 25 to 52 age group were married. By 2019, only 29 years later, it was down to 53%. So just over half in 2019 of the 25 to 52 year old Americans were married. Hmm. Um, I mean, imagine the implications of that. The prime of life people, just only over half are married. Uh, In 1960, only 8% of women and 10% of men 25 and older had never been married. So 1960, 92% of women over the age of 25 had been married. But by 2012, it was down to 17%, or it was up to 17% of women and 23% of men had never been married. Hmm. So we're, we're, we're nudging up towards one in five adult, one in five 25 year old and up women have never been married. And we're over one in five 25 and up men. So here's, the, here's some of the negative societal impact of that reality. We're getting married less. Median earnings for married Americans are $14,000 per year higher than single individuals. Married, so married Americans earn, you know, in the median. On average. 
$14,000 a year more than more. singles. Yes. And for men, it's $21,000 a year more. A married man has a median income of $21,000 a year more than a single yeah. man. And they're not arguing that it's like, oh, you're married, we'll pay you more. Exactly. That doesn't happen. I'm just, I mean, I can tell you, uh, this is so real in my life. I've told Sarah jokingly, my wife, a million times, if I had not married her, I would I would probably be like waiting tables or something, or maybe have like a, <laughs> a an entry-level job at a nine-to-five company. Mm-hmm. It's the very fact of being her husband, then needing to provide for one child, two child, three... I mean, the number of times I went to my boss and said, I need to either, I need you to either give me a new job that pays more, or I need you to pay me more because we had a child on the way Hmm. and me having, me knowing I've got to continue to do good work, show up early, leave a little late. And because I have these people I have to provide for, I'm just one example of you could find millions, tens of millions of men in America right now who have that same story. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the fact that I'm responsible for this household that pushes me in a good way, a good way. Doug Wilson's got a, uh, a line that I love: "Men are like pickup trucks; they drive straighter with a heavier load." <laughs> it's, I've heard that same quote from Mark Driscoll. Really? So, I think he got it from Wilson. So which villain yeah. said it first? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll choose the I'll choose the older of the villain. I'll choose Palpatine <laughs> instead of Darth Vader. Um, no, I love Doug Wilson. Uh, so, but I think. Most of us men, even if you're even if you're only 26 or something, and you've got one kid, or even if you're you know you you don't have a kid yet, but you've gotten married, you you know what I'm talking about. It it pushes you mm-hmm. to try harder, to earn a little more, to push your way up, and it it also even aside from the pressure, it really does make you a better man. Yeah, I was a better manager, and my 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 previous vocation before this was a middle manager at a 200-person company. It's pretty typical. Dunder uh, Mifflin. Yeah, Dunder Mifflin. It was a great company, and I loved it. Um, and, and I loved the people I worked with. I know for a fact I was a better manager of the young people I managed because of being a father. Yeah, It made me more aware of how to talk to people in a way that is clear. Um, it made me more... Uh, it, it widened my birth for personality differences and quirks. Wait, if you think about what... What fatherhood does in a man's life? You've got six children. Yeah. Um, and by God's grace, we expect uh, you have you have one that is in the yep. process of adoption. You have more. Yeah. Um, but what that does in a man's life, I mean, one, it gives you something to work for, um, such that your work is not merely spent on your personal entertainment. Yeah, that's huge. So it's so it's like, and what that has the tendency to do. Because you're, so much of your income and your time devotion is devoted to meeting needs, that sweetens the pleasure mm-hmm. of what little bit remains for entertainment because it's more rare. It becomes yeah. more scarce. And so, um, I mean, you you were able to take your family on a really nice vacation because of a gift. Yeah. Somebody gifted it to you. Took a really nice vacation. All expenses paid to a wonderful trip. Um, and that, it's like, I, I know your kids well. And I mean, you've joked before. It's like you could give your kids a paperclip, and oh, they're yeah. excited. And it was like, oh, look, what a cool paper! Just because they they really delight in all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we go to Kroger, and it's like we went to Epcot, <laughs> right? So it's, but but that's that that is because they are they can appreciate the little things, and they can appreciate the pleasures that they have, um, and you are earning that for them, and 
it, it's this is all coming from one income source. Yeah. So you have um, six children. So you got a family of eight mm. that are provided for by one man busting his tail every day. Um, that that like I, I know how much your wife appreciates how hard you work and what you do to provide, and you appreciate her how much she works, how and yeah. and how what she does to take care of these children. And there is a division of labor that just makes sense. Um, and you know that you're building something together. Yeah. You're dreaming of the future. You're thinking of Christmas morning 30 years from now when you're surrounded by more kids than you know how to count. Yeah. Uh, you're opening presents, and, you're, and you're, you'll have you know, this one, God forbid, but this one wayward grandkid and mm-hmm. this one kid that's gotten in trouble and this one kid it's like doing great. All of those things, you know that you are building that now. You have a vision for mm-hmm. that now, and you're investing in that now. And that – that gives you something hopeful to look forward to, um, and how how can it not? If you're really dedicated to it, um, I mean, I'm not saying that. I mean, well, what I was about to say is, how can that not make you happy? As I said that, there are heartbreaking situations sure. too, where there's tragedy. There are just things where Satan targets uh, somebody. So it's not marriage doesn't guarantee happiness, but marriage does correspond to happiness in an undeniable way. And on the whole, we do see this as evidence, as evidence of God's goodness and the way He created the world. Yeah, this do, that's exactly right. So this doesn't this doesn't mean that on a given Tuesday, married you is happier than single <clears throat> you would have been on that Tuesday. You're usually pretty grouchy on Tuesdays. Yeah, Tuesdays are a bad day for me. Um, but in what it's saying is that over a wide over the the normal. Uh, course of a life and throughout the normal human population, it's going to correspond to more happiness because it really is how God made the world. And I know from, I'm glad you brought up wives. Like, I mean, I know my wife, if she were sitting here would say it, yes, a morning might, will be hard. Bath time will be hard. Two or three of them being sick at the same time will be hard. But the 14 years of our marriage and these six kids populating those 14 years and us working together to build a household and her her managing that budget that I'm able to give her because I, I earn this money and her figuring out the best place to spend this or that dollar mm-hmm. and double checking that it's okay to spend it on this thing instead of that thing. All of that work together over 14 years amounts to a much more happy, blessed, holy, sanctified yeah. Sarah. Yeah, it, it, it's hard in a way that maximizes joy. It's hard in a way uh, a Super Bowl athlete would talk about training camp. It's like, man, I hated it. I was puking my guts out. Coach ran us into the ground. You know, like, mm-hmm. but the glory is in the prize. And if you see the prize and you know what it is you're building, what it is you're investing in, you can, one, you can endure it in the hard times, but it, it there's always a meaning behind it. Yeah. It's not, it's not merely, uh, just a difficult thing. It's a difficulty that has a has an end. Yeah, it, it's, there's some purpose that it's pointed towards. Yeah, I, I love that it kept me. There's never once where I could have just quit a job. Yeah, there was never once where I could be like, man, I had some big fight with my peer, and if I were single, I could, but I had to. Yeah, I had to get through things, and and that getting through to the other side has made me more mature. Yeah. Having a family to feed mm-hmm. yeah. will will drive a man. To, to do incredible things because he 
he's compelled by something that he loves. Yeah. It's something that, that, that really means everything to him. And he's more of a stakeholder in the future. And that goes for men and women. Yeah. And you're a stakeholder in the future. So we're, so we're getting married less, and that has uh, negative societal impacts. I only brought up the salary one as one potential societal impact, but there are dozens of others we could talk about. Uh, here's the, the second um, element of this deep dive. We're getting married later, and that's a problem. So getting married less, getting, getting married, married less, later. and we're getting married later. So Americans are getting married much less, and they are getting married much later. In 1960, the average American woman got married at 20.3 years old. In 1990, that was up to 23.9 years old. Average woman got married at 23.9. By 2022, <clears throat> the average American was get, American woman was getting married at 28.2 years old, and that matters. Be- that they're talking about women mm-hmm. because marriage by God's design naturally in- would involve children. Right. So when, and it's just, it's a biological reality. There's it's no a biological reality. It. A man can father a child at 95 years old. Yeah. I think I saw Al Pacino fathered a child or something like last year. I don't think he's 95 yet. Uh, I mean, he's gotta be. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, he ain't young. Yeah. But yeah, but, but there's no woman his age that is going to give birth to a child. It, right. it just, there are too many health risks. And so what that's going to, that's going to impact, um, the, this woman's potential health, um, the number of children she could have and the complications. Yeah. The health in those of those pregnancies. children. Yeah. And so this, there is a, you are limiting the number of children that a society can have if the society normalizes, or let's just even say if the society sees, maybe the society is confused as to why it's even happening. But if for some reason a society looks around and sees, man, 60 years ago, our average woman was getting married at 20, and now all of a sudden our average woman's getting married at 28, you can't chop off eight years of childbearing years and not see an impact to your mm-hmm. population. And that is what's happening to America. So um, negative societal impact. We are having fewer babies. By 2021, the average age of a mother when her first child was born was 27.3. In 1980, it was 22.7. So two years five ago. Year. Yeah, yeah, so five-year yeah. difference. Um when tens of a million, when tens of millions of Americans get married later and later, we're going to have less babies as a society, which is what we're seeing. Replacement birth rate is 2.1. Um, you have to have 2.1 babies per woman in order to replace your population. We're right now, I think, in the 1.6 to 1.7 range. It says right there, 1.78 in 2023. There you go. Or 2020. Yeah. So I, that that sounds like statistical mumbo jumbo, but. The, I think it is it is not an appreciated fact broadly that our society requires an increasing population to yeah. function. Like, just take Social Security for example. Yeah, Social Security is is not, is not sustainable, but the expectation is well, if we have an increasing number of people entering into the job market, which increases the number of contributors to Social Security, then that enables us to afford to pay out the promised benefits. But that's just one small example. If you have a decreasing workforce because you have a decreasing population, then Social Security will be just one of many um, 
programs and just aspects of society that will crumble. And I'm not getting into the the morality or the wisdom of, of, of a system like like a government. No, but it's just a reality. Safety net like that. You have to have people, even you if it weren't people. government. Even if it weren't government. I read a couple of years ago about how in Japan, I think it was Japan, Japan or South Korea, one of the East Asian developed countries with a very low birth rate, they were uh, considering having um, robotic uh, tools to stand in for human care workers at nursing homes because they don't they have more aging people than they have mm. young people entering that particular profession yeah uh, you yeah, can't so think of in the ancient world you have two aging parents but let's say they only had one child for some reason um or say they didn't have any kids at all right it's like there's nobody that is invested in them the way a child would be to take care of them and in that situation you're relying on either the state or some yeah. some service that you'll pay for and no certain nobody's going to care if you like a like a, a family member a child would yeah uh, the child is going to they're, they're just going to be naturally obligated right. to do that i had a, a really sweet lady who worked for me at my last job um who's in her uh, mid-60s early 60s and during covid she had uh an aging parent aging father and she was one of i think five or six siblings and I just remember talking to her about how much care she showed and one of the other siblings showed on a weekly basis. Even during COVID when they could not touch him mm. or get in the same room, they would sit on the other side of like a window. They would be like out in a courtyard or something and just spend time with him. And it's not like I, I got, you know, I got the impression the dad could be a little grumpy. He wasn't the easiest guy to talk to, but he was their father. Yeah. So they were going to go on a weekly or biweekly basis and spend time with him. And I, I would talk with her about how sad I was for people who had one child or no children. Nobody to care for them. You're either going to have strangers at a nursing home, which if that's all you can have, then I understand that's all you can yeah. have. But, but do we want to, Yeah, do we want to make that the norm? Do we want to continue to propel people towards, it's okay, be single for as long as you want. I mean, so there's one quote here uh, from Susan Brown at Bowling Green State Bowling Green State University. They've got the National Center for Marriage and Family Research. I put the link in the show notes here for this uh, data gathering organization. They had some really great stuff. She said, this lady, Susan Brown, co-director there, the number of women entering their first marriage between the ages of 40 and 59 has jumped 75% since 1990. <laughs> oh, has jumped 75%. If you're I getting married... What the- actual yeah not, not, i wonder what the the, uh, the total statistics are that's yeah. fascinating but the fact that it's gone that high up even if it is just a, a fraction of a fraction it all of those women i mean the yeah. vast majority aren't gonna be able to have children right so what's what is the story i mean so i'm i'm, I'm guessing here so there's a bit of a imaginative uh, speculation here but i think it's probably reasonable to assume what i'm about to say First marriage between forty and fifty-nine. Um, what's what's going on? Yeah. It, it is likely that these women either disavowed marriage or told themselves they don't need it or that it would be available later. But there's something that I, I don't think it's just that they were totally unmarriageable. No, it's just that they they had other priorities. But then by the time they hit forty, what I mean. 40 is an important milestone. Yeah, it is. 40 up to 59, getting married for the first time. Um, now, of course, there could be cohabitations and they finally tied the knot. That that could be the case, too. But nevertheless, that that is a significant number that there's so many people in that particular age range because they're thinking, 
they're, they're, they're thinking now, like, I am getting older. Right. And I need to, if I want to get married at all, it's, it's almost like I value this thing now that I'm, that I'm so old that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't sound good. It's like, like as you get older and you now haven't done it, it's like, it's like now that I'm in my 40s and 50s, I now value something that I had discarded in my youth, and I want to make up for that. And what we're pushing back against is sitcoms, music, just our whole cultural apparatus does celebrate this sort of thing. I and mean, I'm just thinking of two cultural artifacts, and they may not resonate with you guys, but whatever, they're the ones on my mind. Seinfeld and Friends. Both of those shows in Elaine and then in the Three Women and Friends, they did sort of play around with in a, in a, in a, in a way that seemed humorous and even in the case of Friends, kind of heartfelt and like worthwhile. The idea of women not getting married till they're 35, 38. Um, and I'm like, if you just, if, if you make it seem as though that is a, a good, beautiful, yeah. potentially life-giving thing, um, you're going to end up with a lot of these women. And I, I just, I foresee yeah. the human tragedy of being 60 years old and having one or no children because you got married at 39, 40, 41. Hmm. And what, what it means for your life. Yeah. Lisa Kudrow is 60 years old. Oh man, That's, she's feeding. that makes me feel old. Courtney Cox is fifty nine. I believe Jennifer Aniston is fifty five. I know it's totally random. I was uh, I was on a website earlier okay. today, and okay. I and I saw. Uh, I was like, here's here's how old the Friends cast is now. So I, I actually I don't I don't know if she is still married to this guy. I have no reason to think she is or isn't. I just I, Hollywood marriages, but I think Lisa actually was one who had like in real life she got married and had I think a handful of kids. Uh, oh, like the real Lisa Kudrow, even mm-hmm. though in the show, Phoebe gets married in the last season uh, to Paul Rudd's character. By the way, Paul Rudd always looks like he's 37. Yeah, he, he's perpetually um, young. <laughs> hey, here's a couple other data points yeah, yeah. I want to throw in here. Um, so these are from these are from, not from the Atlantic article. It's a different, just some different things I curated. Um, so this is some tweets from Nancy Piercy. Mm. Um, the happiest wives are religious conservatives. That can't be true. That can't be true. What? No, I'm just kidding. I mean, of course it's true. Yeah, yeah. But I think of religious conservatives, what, what does that tell you? Religious conservatives have a broad set of convictions. Um, that's what makes you conservative. You, you, there, are, there's, there's a, a broad array of things that you care about and you want to conserve. And it's interesting that they report being happier. So she is citing a New York Times article, and here's a quote. It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. Um, and here's, a, here's another data point. The most abusive husbands are nominal Protestants. Mm. Um, same, uh, so, so same author. Uh, so Nancy Piercy's quoting Brad Wilcox again from a different source, but he said the most violent husbands in America are nominal evangelical Protestants who attend church infrequently or not at all. Here's why I find this interesting: the the stereotype that is often pushed by those that are undermining the value of marriage is that marriage is oppressive the the dreaded patriarchy is is oppressive it's you know harmful to women women hate it men hate it uh, or men hate the women and it's just mm-hmm. misery you're chained up to the stove barefoot pregnant in the kitchen it's a, it, i mean that's how it is at all our houses here it's oh every, yeah 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 
It's so absurd. But but these things undermine. So basically, like an, a, the nominal Protestant, those are the most abusive husbands. So those are the ones that would claim some religious affiliation, but they don't really live it out. But the happiest wives, the ones that you would think, they, them being under mm-hmm. the iron thumb of a patriarchal husband, they are the ones that report the highest level of happiness. And it is 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values, and they attend re- church regularly with their husbands. they got high-quality marriages. Yeah. Um, one, other, one other data point here, um, given the previous things that Wade had spoken of about um, people getting married later and what was it getting getting married less and getting married later getting married less and getting married later um two little data points here um one is young singles are polarizing politically Mm. um so men are trending hard conservative and women are trending hard liberal and these are uh gen z so these are these are uh people that are just now entering into the dating market um aoc is probably gen z i'm guessing Oh, is she really? She's. I think she's younger than me. I th- I th- that's a millennial, right? I'm oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Am I, I'm I'm millennial. What's the cutoff for millennial? I think I you told know. me this before. I, I don't. I, it's okay, I, I know the. All right, I'm gonna look up if AOC. Right, you, so Wade is going to look up the scientific data on who is and is not a millennial. While I make this other point, so young singles are politi- polarizing politically, and one of the results here and how much it's connected, I don't know, but I think it's notable. This is a, also a Nancy Piercy tweet. She said, young men are giving up the search for a wife. She says, many singles are not even looking for a relationship anymore. They are giving up hope. Um, And so in 2019, the share of single men in the U.S. who are looking for dates or a relationship has declined. So in 2019, it was 61%. In 2022, it's down to 50%. So single men... um, I'm looking at the data here. It doesn't give an age range, but just single men. 2019, about six out of ten were looking for uh, looking for a partner. Three years later, 11 percent of those now just down to half. They've given up. And just think about that. And that's why we started out this episode the way we did. I I really care about single men and single women mm-hmm. who desire marriage, especially like Christian men and women, you love Jesus, you love the Lord, you want to honor him, you see the value of marriage, you see what you you, you agree with scripture, um, and you want to live this out. And yet the the circumstances have, the, the circumstances are difficult. It's, I, I mean, I've, I'll be, I've been married 24 years. Uh, happily so, I would mm-hmm. I would add. <laughs> um, but I, I'm like, what? I don't know what I would do if I had to start looking for a wife now. Um, everything is different. It is so different now. I mean, look in the newspaper and the personal ads in your <laughs> single white female or right. single yeah. b- black male. No, I don't either. And those. I'm ten years younger than you, and I literally don't know what you would do. Like, I don't even know how you. I mean, like, I, so I, I know, like, Wade and I are speaking from there's a generational gap here but i know that in our church context uh, most of the people in our church are wade's age or younger um and a lot of the young people in our church that's like it's a lot of dating apps they rely on yep. uh, apps and technology and that's 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 very much a normative thing um and so it's like 
I want I want the single men and women in our church and that would listen to this um, to to be able to experience the joy and, and the happiness of marriage by living along living in with the grain of God's design um, because that is this is how He made the world and it breaks my heart that it's so difficult um, and so as we you know wrap up this episode in a few minutes we'll we'll uh, offer a few thoughts about um, about what to, where to go go from here yeah. Um, let me. I, I'll just. I'll read First uh, Timothy three and offer a thought, and then um, uh, Michael, if you if you want to take that First Corinthians seven and singleness versus celibacy, that's uh, got it. Kind of an important distinction, I think that we're trying to make. You may have heard it implied here, but let, let me go to First Timothy three. So First Timothy three verses one through five, Paul is talking about to Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus, the uh, the lead elder, lead pastor in Ephesus. And he describes the office of elder and the characteristics for elder. And many of you are familiar with these characteristics in this passage. But the reality is that any good Christian man should resemble an elder in the moral components. So he may not have the gift of teaching and he may not be called to the office, but he should he should be elder-like. In yeah, his... any elder is not Superman. He is just an exemplary Christian. Exactly. And so with that being the case, uh, I think there's something really useful to hear in in these five verses when it comes to uh, why it is good for a man to be a husband and a father. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, involving people in in your house life able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, and he's tying that to keeping his children submissive, not to cutting the grass, not to making sure that the windows are washed or the laundry's done. He says, keeping his children submissive for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? And so I, it does not mean that every elder must be a husband or a father, but it's it's self-evident. It's obvious that Paul has in mind by being faithful to his wife and keeping his children submissive, this man is both learning and also demonstrating the ability to manage God's church. And so if you want to be a good member of a church, a good leader in a church, a good small group leader, a, a good father in your church, a good older man in your church, perhaps the best proving ground for that is being a husband and a dad, a mm-hmm. husband and a father. Yeah, that's good. Um, so I'll read from arguably the most, uh, I, I think it probably is the, the most extensive treatment of uh, the teaching on singleness, celibacy. Um, Jesus acknowledges it when he says there are those that have been made eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. So mm-hmm. Jesus acknowledges to a, a, a calling to celibacy, uh, he would call eunuch for the kingdom, for the sake of extraordinary service. But uh, but more of a extended treatment of it and teaching is 1 Corinthians 7. And there's I, I don't, I'm not going to read too much of it here because it goes on quite a ways. But Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. 
But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. He goes on and um, you know continues along the same same line of teaching there. I have heard this taught uh, as the open and shut. This is it's better to be single. Mm-hmm. Um, and people that would make that case the point to this text. Um, and I think that that is I think it is wrong headed. Um, and I'm going to be. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too in a moment. But the idea of the present distress there mm-hmm. in verse 26 that that frames the teaching. He said, "In yeah. view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is." And he teases that out. Now we don't know what the present distress was. It could have been persecution of the church. It could have been um, a famine that was in the land. But it was something that was so disruptive that taking on major life commitments like marriage um, was would cause somebody, hey, think twice about this. Mm-hmm. So I I would think of it as um, let's say you know you're there's a military draft and you're you're a young man and there's a good chance you're going to be sent into you know heavy fire combat duty um, and you've got a fiance you might consider it's like if I marry her. I might make her a widow. Mm-hmm. Do I want to make her a widow? Um, or would it be best to delay the wedding um, until I come back from combat and then get married then? I mean, that seems like a good anal- analogy yeah. to what Paul is teaching here. Um, but what he's not doing is teaching something that – so the a, a good way I've heard expressed is grace does not overturn nature. Yeah. The way God has made the world did not fundamentally change in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, it is redeemed. As the resurrection of Jesus enables us to more fully pursue in the power of the Spirit the way God has ordered the world and live in light of that under, with his power, knowing that we're forgiven. But it doesn't, it doesn't change the, the normative nature of marriage and family life, household life. If it did, then if singleness is better, and then everybody would want to do what's best, mm-hmm. all the Christians would die out. We right. wouldn't have any Christian babies. Right. Um, so it's, by Christian babies, I mean we wouldn't we wouldn't be having babies and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Right. So it's a nonsensical type of position. Do you have any thoughts on that, Wade? Yeah, I do. I, I in in view of the present distress, I think you're exactly right. Is the is the framing, and so um, there's a tendency with all of us when we read an epistle. Uh, I still do this myself. We we just fall into the trap of thinking Paul's talking to me. He's writing to Wade. He's writing to Michael. And the mm-hmm. reality is he's not. All scripture is God breathed. God is using what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church to then instruct and build up the church universal. And to the Corinthian church, he said, in view of this present distress. Um I, I don't have a great hunch as to what that present distress was, but I think I could I could say with 
good confidence it's some measure of first century Christian persecution. And so if somebody were to tell me, in light of violent Christian persecution, I don't want to pursue marriage, I want to pursue singleness and keep my mind devoted to the Lord, then I would say you, 1 Corinthians 7 could be a place to house that conviction pretty plausibly. Mm-hmm. But that ain't what that ain't what yeah. when I when I meet a 21st century 23 year old Christian who's using First Corinthians seven as the reason to not get married, I, I want to be like in view of what present distress uh, you can get you can get thrown into the gulags next week or is it a month from now or like that's not that's yeah. not it, our situation is not analogous to the situation Paul was writing to, um, and your point is is probably the most logically powerful one. Just think logically for a second. If it were the case that every church and every city and every society was analogous to 1 Corinthians 7, Christianity would have no children. Christianity would have no babies or very, very few. Um, So understand who he's talking to. Yeah, and I've seen those that have tried to live this out by starting like a a Christian commune, Mm -hmm. you know, like a community house. And uh, it, it just... The nat, the nat, they, it doesn't have the natural bonds, yeah. the ties that bind the way a family does, and inevitably they break apart. Yeah. They just they don't seem to, on the whole, be healthy, good arrangements for for Christians. Because grace does not overturn nature, which even the Apostle Paul knows that, because he says in First Timothy, let those who uh, let let families take care of themselves, so that the, the mm-hmm. true widows, so that the or yep. widows, so that the church can take care of the true widows, the ones who have nobody. But let families take care of those widows that are inside their family i mean so paul himself clearly understood grace does not overturn nature the reality of familial bonds yeah that's something god made and hardwired into the world well our our, our time is getting short yeah, here yeah. so why don't we jump down to the listener question all right and i think that will also give us opportunity to just offer some pastoral counsel yep you want to yeah so um from mr jake uh one of our loyal listeners here in cincinnati He says, I guess I would ask, what are the most commonly believed lies the world tells men about marriage and dating? What about women? Uh, Are these significantly different between men and women? Are the lies the world tells significantly different men versus women based on your experience, pre-marriage counseling and more? So let me ask that one first. And I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there quickly. I think Aaron Wren has, has said incredibly useful things here that uh, as soon as he said them, they were the kinds of things 10 years ago, eight years ago, whenever I first heard of Aaron Wren and saw some of his his Christian commentary on uh, what we might now call the manosphere. I was like, oh my gosh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that would basically be like, when I was growing up, you know, Hugh Grant was the guy in all the rom-coms and David Schwimmer's character on Friends was like, hey, yeah, there was this archetype of the of the man who the nice got guy. the girl who, yeah, yeah and... Uh, Niceness is actually not even a biblical virtue. Like mm-hmm. kindness is and gentleness is. But the idea of the idea that I sort of just got from movies and, and TV shows was that if you were harmless, totally sweet and introspective, yeah. uh, almost almost timid to a fault. Yeah, if you suppress your masculinity right. and make yourself more like a woman then she will relate to you better and fall in love with you. Yes. And that's not how... It's not how it works. It's like complementarity does drive attraction. Right. So like what I... The things about my wife that are most feminine are the things that are the most beautiful about her. It's like, 
I don't want uh, it's like I don't want to be married to another dude. Uh, right, I want to be right. married to a woman who is feminine and she does all the feminine things. Right. And those things brighten up my life. They brighten up my home because they complement, they they account for things that I'm weak in. But what often is so here's a lie and I I want to say it's a, it, it's a lie but I I don't want to assign motive as though somebody's being uh I think it's possibly a well-intentioned lie, but it's something I've heard. It's like godliness is sexy, mm-hmm. um, and what it what it does is it 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 causes us to think that because I'm a Christian, then the masculine things about me are secondary. They don't really matter. The thing that matters is that I've got just good character. Of course, you want good character. I'm not dismissing that at all, but I'm saying there is a shape of masculine character, masculine virtue, and a shape of women character and feminine virtue. That's, that's why we're doing a conference about it next right. year. And I would say a, a masculine godly man, is, that is that, that's what a man should pursue. And I mean, I, I, I would suspect that that's going to correspond to what women will find attractive. And yeah. I think that that's, I think it's demonstrably true. Yeah, it's self, I mean, if you watch just, you know, if you know in a, in a in a church or whatever, you've got 20, 30, 40 young Christian women, just watch the men that they are typically gravitating to as they start considering marriage partners. It's it's going, generally speaking, they're going to find confidence attractive. They're yeah. going to find uh, even some things that are outside of our control, like height attractive. And those correspond to the way God actually made the world. Now, so if a guy's five, you know, I'm five nine, I think, or five ten when I lie on my driver's license. So I can't control that. However, if you know, if I go back to to when I was twenty years old and my dad might be trying to coach me on how to find a good Christian wife, he's gonna say things to me like, stand up straight, mm-hmm. make eye contact. When you when you shake hands, shake firmly. Um, don't don't use a lot of filler words like um and look down and kick your shoe, you know. Act yeah. like you belong in the room, yeah. and a godly woman will slowly begin. She'll notice you. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think our those things correspond to the the duties of a man in the creation mandate. So, uh, lead, protect, provide. Mm-hmm. Um, a man who is going to lead well is going to have to have a certain degree of self confidence. A man who is going to provide is going to he's going to need to show competence, mastery, skill, success. Um, and a man who's going to protect is going to need to have some degree of assertiveness mm-hmm. um, and even aggression, uh, holy aggression. Um, those things are those are not cultivated virtues amongst the Christian world, but I think those are essential uh, for men, young men especially, to cultivate. Mm-hmm. On the same token, um, for a woman to uh, be a helper. Um, women that that want to help, she wants to support. She mm-hmm. wants to like, you know, how can I, what do you need from me? Um, a woman who is willing to follow um, and a woman who is nurturing, like she she has a way about her. You could tell it's like she, it's like I, I notice when a young woman, uh, how does she respond to babies? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, if she looks at these creatures like they're, they're aliens, then I'm like, okay, there's a, there's a nurturing deficit there that, that could, that that can negate her attractiveness um but there's a there's a number of other things but those are the sort of characteristics that i think for a man to lead provide protect for a woman to nurture to help to mother um when those are evident 
in a man or woman, they that can increase attractiveness. Mm-hmm. So I would say, men, cultivate those in yourself yep. and look for the corresponding virtues in a woman. And of course, there are going to be a bajillion ways that they'll be expressed through different unique personalities. And um, and we're all we're all in process. We'll all grow. But I think that those are good kind of boilerplate things to look for generally. Yeah. And uh, we didn't touch too much on women. So just throw this in there. I do think women are lied to in in a number of ways. But one of them is what you just said about nurturing and about babies. The implication uh, in most of our art and media right now is that uh, women are called to exactly the same th- kinds of things that men are called to, yeah. and <clears throat> it's just simply not true. Yep. And so, if you if you do want to um, attract godly men who you would in turn be attracted to, men who are confident and competent and capable, um, you're gonna you're gonna want to as as best you can accentuate those qualities yep. of motherliness of tenderness of uh, gentility and softness those things will and even look to the man with um, with a with a sort of expectation that he would provide it right like like if, if let's say if something scary were to happen if my wife were to kind of hide behind me that that is such an honor right that is like i i would if it's a dog and i'm like i'd let that dog gnaw my leg off right because she is looking to me for protection and that helps that reminds me of what my duty is so i would say like for ladies like it's okay to 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 be vulnerable mm-hmm. um and by vulnerable I, what i mean is like to to express a desire for the men around you to like honor them as protectors mm-hmm. i can give you an example um there was a woman um, situation in our church where there was there was a man who was behaving in a way that was uh, threatening. The other uh, Eric, our other elder here, and I both recognized mm-hmm. this man is somebody we need to watch out for. We shared these details with uh, some folks that were on a in a prayer meeting, and one of the women in the prayer meeting, she just responded, "said Thank you. I feel so protected. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was a loving thing to do. That that you guys." went to him you confronted him and you know he he went he went his own way and that i was like that yeah. that made me feel like i've, I've done my duty right and that's a good thing for a man to feel should that a way. young single woman communicate something like that a young woman who wants to be married to in in the hearing of uh good godly young single men they're going to respond to that as typically they're going to respond to that as that's the kind of woman i would want to marry mm-hmm. and they're going to be drawn to it yeah, um, and even but the messaging that a lot of women hear is yeah, like, don't do that. You, it's like you don't need no man. You need to be strong, independent, fierce, whatever. And that's that's Hollywood, right? That's not real life. So that would be a lie that we're or some lies that we're seeing in both directions. Jake's second part of his question was: I've also noticed there is an incredibly weird set of expectations due to dating apps and commodification of dating. Man, another great writer. We are attracting so many like yeah. precise verbal thinkers. Uh, what are realistic and biblically based expectations going into marriage versus the expectations of today? So I see my dating app. I've got my, you know, all these profile pictures where people are just in their best possible makeup or their best possible hairstyle, their best possible whatever. Um, what are realistic and biblically based expectations going into marriage versus the expectations of today? Yeah. So my thought on this is um, you have I like that he said realistic and biblically based. So I'll, I'll deal with the biblically based first. You want to look at what 
what direction are they pointed? Um, when I was first married, I was a weak, effeminate man. Mm. <laughs> effeminate in the sense that I was just I was irresponsible. You're wearing dresses. Uh, I, I, I wasn't wearing dresses, but okay. I just I, I say effeminate to just I know mean like mean. I I was not living as a the masculine strength God had called me to. But I was, but I was pointed in that direction. Uh, same thing with my wife. We had a lot of things that we needed to figure out, but where were we headed? That was that was important. Um, so we were moving in a direction. However, realistically, we just have to acknowledge that our culture does not promote these virtues mm-hmm. at all. Churches, I don't know very many churches that would even touch the subject, much less provide real solid counsel yeah. about it. So. I, th- I think we just have to know. I, I, so, ladies, I think you have been um, you have been praised. Uh, it's like, girl, you you don't right. he he doesn't deserve you. you it's like you you've been been so uh, flattered that you think that every man that you meet is going to be the perfect specimen of godly masculinity. Mm-hmm. But he has like been, Ryan Goslin with John Piper's faith. <laughs> I thought. <laughs> When you said that, I was thinking John Piper's face. No, 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 I'm like, no, no. So what's no. the point of him being Ryan Gosling yeah. if he's got John yeah. Piper's face? Oh, that'd be face. the worst combination. John Piper with Ryan Gosling's faith? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I'm looking at the sound meters here. It's like we're like peeking out on our audio recording when I'm laughing at that joke. But I... But I think like a lot of women have been told this to where you're basically what I'm saying is this: you've got to have realistic expectations. You're going to meet a guy; he's going to fall in love with you, and um, he he's not going to be what you want. Um, so you got to know like what direction is he pointed? Right? Um, is he is he getting more squishy? Is he getting is he getting more pandering and soft and effeminate? Uh, well, that's a problem. But if he's a man that says, "I want to be," we have a of a, a young man in our small group. Yeah. Um, this young man, um, he's. It's like we love this guy, mm-hmm. and he's always asking, "I want to be a better man." And he said, "I, I love being around these these older guys mm-hmm. that have raised children." It's like I want to be a father. It's he's like, getting better month after month. Yes, but it's a it's a dedicated effort that he's putting in because he knows he's been lied to. So a man like that that is headed in the right direction. Um, can account for a lot. Yeah, buy but, low. Somebody buy this guy. If somebody buys this guy low, you know what I mean. I'm serious. At like 21 or whatever he yeah. is, they're not telling him what you could have at 30. Yeah. So it's, I would say with women, it's like you, it's like you can't expect. There's going to be some men that you you got to see his potential, but there's a lot of guys out there that they've being and acting like a real man is like learning English as a second language. Yeah, it's not their native tongue, but if they're learning it, you can work with that. So that's, I, I think that goes both ways. Yeah. But the counsel particularly applies to women because I think women are flattered more because we want to encourage women, want to build them up. Uh, just I think yeah. it's just a natural impulse. But that I think a lot of women think so highly of themselves. They think like, why well, should have the greatest man? It's like no, you, that doesn't mean you're settling for second best. Right. But that does mean that you're you see potential in a man, and I'm. I'm saying you may not be all that amazing either. Right. (laughs) But you may never get told that because we're very comfortable in American Christianity and American life telling men, hey, look, dude, you got some problems. You need to you need to shape up. But I mean, you'll almost never hear that. 
about women, about a particular woman. You almost never hear a pastor or a man or anybody confront a particular woman, but also just like women in general. Well, it's like because when a woman is corrected, it is it is seen as you have committed the unthinkable crime. Right. You dared criticize a woman. And I'm not saying that that may not apply to every particular woman listening to this. But generally speaking, as a man, I can tell you whenever you venture into this territory of of saying a woman, it's like, yeah. well, I'm not going to flatter you, and I think you've got some big problems here. If you correct a woman, be prepared for some serious blowback, because a lot of women, they just never hear it. Right. Uh, I mean, like, just little quick intellectual exercise. I know we're at the end here, but imagine you're at a typical big Eva, big evangelical church, okay? And uh, you hear a pastor say, men, you need to. What are the likeliest things to come after that that sent, you know, it's going to be something like, man, man up. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get your act together. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be something like, and he's not going to feel at all bad about it. Now you hear the same pastor say something, women, you need to. I can almost guarantee you it's going to believe be, in believe in yourself. yourself. <laughs> That's going to be what it is. <laughs> believe in yourself. And so I, I just. Follow your dreams. I'm picturing <laughs> a great example of this. I heard somebody else use this, uh, this analogy of what, of what can be what a, a typical woman should probably look for. And, and I would say a man too. In Pride and Prejudice, a uh, great Jane Eyre book or Jane Austen book, there's a scene where this woman who's not quite, um, who's not quite what the heroine is. She's not as smart. She's not quite as pretty. And there's a man who's not quite what Mr. Darcy is, I think is the main guy's name. He's not quite as attractive. He's not t- as tall. He's not, but they end up marrying each other and having a very fruitful marriage with all these little accommodations they have to make with each other's quirks and the fact that they're not. Mm. And it's, it's a very touching scene in this book where you see these two people who are both pretty average and they produce a, kind of an extraordinary marriage where they're able to make life work together. The reality is most of us are there. Most of us are in the middle of the bell curve. And so you just, you just pointed this out for men. I'll point it out for, or I'm sorry, for women, you pointed it out to them. I'll point out to men similarly. Okay. Don't look only for Natalie Portman or something. I'm, I, she's like, super liberal. Yeah, she is. I don't know any new actresses. Taylor Swift, right? She's like a yeah. She's, she's not an actress. She's a singer. Okay. Either way, understand. You're, you don't know this stuff. You're too busy reading Jane Austen novels. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I be be willing to expand your horizons a little bit when it comes to to both physical beauty, but also even to temperament and personality and things mm-hmm. like that. If you can find a godly woman who. Who And I, attraction is a little bit of a mysterious thing. I understand that. I want each person to be attracted to their spouse, but who you can see yourself attracted to. And you're 25 years old and she's 24 years old. And it's it, you're, you're there. You're ready to do this, to build a household. And your, your values, for the most part, line up. Don't be afraid to begin thinking about engagement and marriage, even if your palms aren't sweating every time she yeah. opens the door. It doesn't. Yeah. That, that's that is not realistic or real. Yeah. And, and guys, most of our grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents did not marry under though only those circumstances where mm-hmm. it was the notebook. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> Ryan Gosling. Yeah, again. yeah, I know. He's on. My, I guess he's on the brain. Um, I just I, I'm, there's a, there's some Christian guys I've got in mind in our church who I want to get married, and I'm like, if mm-hmm. if you find a woman who is a suitable wife. And there's, there's a level of attraction there, even if it's not, don't be afraid to start taking steps towards engagement in marriage. Attraction, what is attractive changes. 
the physical infatuation, that part of attraction, I promise you, that is the least important thing ultimately long term. Right. What matters, what will make your marriage happy is not how hot she is. Right. It is like what what is she like? Like, what is her what is her character like? Um, and I, I probably sound like a hypocrite because I, I, because of what I said earlier. But I'm talking about feminine beauty. That's, right. I'm saying like the inner character, like First Peter talks about in um, other scriptures. But the thing that I'm the thing I'm emphasizing here is like, if if a woman is is she willing to follow your lead? Do you do you sense that she has that that quiet, feminine, gentle spirit? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- those th- that's the kind of woman that you can build a very happy life with. Right. Um, You're going to be eighty years old together. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of you is going to look great probably at eighty. Yeah, and if she's like. If she's girl bossing and she's like got a, if she's looking at you know here's my incredible resume look at look at all my success and my if she's like if she's overly career focused um, to a point that it would it would impede your your family life I mean for me I, w- I wanted a woman who would want to raise a family right um, and I'm not this is not a statement about women and workplace and jobs that's a, a that's a topic for a different day but I'm saying like look at what 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 fires her up. Right. What does she really want? Um, I, I have a niece. Uh, she's a wonderful young woman, and she's beautiful, and she wants to get married, and she wants to build a house. She wants to have babies and and just right. have a household. I'm like, that's the kind of woman. Right. That's I the think, kind of woman I would point my son if he were her age. I'd yeah. point him towards that kind of woman. And another practical tip, uh, young ladies, if you are a conservative, wear it proudly. Yeah. Because the – like the the young men that are going conservative, they're trending that way. It's like that's what they're looking for. So don't 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 be don't be dishon- ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of it. Be honest with you. I mean, be honest. I mean, don't lie to lie to them. But um, that's not something you need to hide. Yeah. Um, the right man will will sniff that out right away, and that'll definitely be an asset in your favor. Hundred percent. All right. Well, let's let's close it out this way. Um, so. All of our listeners, we've got some, I'm sure. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk just to the Christian listeners for a moment. We're happy to have you as a guest if you're non-Christian. But all our Christian listeners, if you are not yet married uh, but are not called to celibacy, hear us telling you we want the same thing for you. We want godliness. We want joy in the Lord. We want you to be sanctified. Marriage is a temporary thing. We will ultimately be with the Lord and we will not be with our earthly spouses anymore. Instead, we'll be a part of his eternal bride. We want all of that for you. At the same time, we also want the same thing that you want, which is a godly husband or wife. And so in this life, we pray that blessing for you, pursue it unashamedly, uh, and at the same time, knowing God's ultimately in control. If you are married, thank God for the blessing for it, because it, it is God's way of uh, demonstrating his love for you and his care for you in giving you that spouse. Protect that marriage no matter what. And for all of us, let's love what God loves uh, and help each other to do so well. Thank you for listening to the Current Reality Podcast. Send us any feedback to currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. If you found this episode helpful, consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing it with a friend. And for more information about the King's Domain Gendered Virtue Men and Women Who Take Dominion conference in April of next year, check the link in the show notes. See you next time.